Here at Lady Farmer, we talk about so many different aspects of slow and sustainable living, a subject matter that can at times feel confusing, overwhelming, even misleading. And that's why a few years ago, we set out to write a book that might be a guide for those seeking a life of beauty, simplicity, and sustainability. We're thrilled to be able to offer you our own small guide for cultivating slow living, sustainable simplicity close to home available in our online marketplace. In the book, you've woven an easy-to-digest narrative of stories, recipes, tips, resources, ideas, and reflection. This collection of essays and resources will guide you to think about your own relationship to the planet, what you eat, what you wear, and how you live a sustainable lifestyle. It also contains a 21-day slow-living challenge of daily thought exercises to lead you in the process. For you Good Dirt listeners, we are offering free shipping of this wonderful little book with the code THEGOODDIRT in our online marketplace. So use the code THEGOODDIRT, T-H-E-G-O-O-D-D-I-R-T at checkout when you go to purchase your copy of The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living in our online marketplace for free shipping. That's The Good Dirt at The Lady Farmer online marketplace for free shipping on The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks, everybody. Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. And there's a whole debate in permaculture about whether spirituality should be there or not. And to me, that's almost a sacrilege when permaculture has an, a sort of unarticulated debt to indigenous people who would never separate, quote unquote, farming from spiritual life. It wouldn't occur to them that they would be separate. You're listening to The Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty-gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now, the farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Welcome to the Good Turt Podcast. It is September 1st. Gosh, can you believe it? Mom, I think we've got an episode of Slow Living Through the Seasons, which is our new podcast from you coming up next week. So do you want to give us a little preview? Yeah. Okay. So September is the month when we officially welcome fall, but it's still three weeks away. So in the spirit of slow living through the seasons, we're embracing these last beautiful days of summer. Even though we're surrounded everywhere by the marketing of fall. Speaking of which, Emma, did you know that it's been 20 years since Starbucks introduced the pumpkin spice latte? I didn't know that. I can't believe that it's been that long. (laughs) I know. 
time flies, huh? Yeah, it's been such a cultural phenomenon that it's like the official beginning of fall when it comes out. So here's a little teaser from our new episode of Slow Living Through the Seasons coming out next week. We'll be including a recipe for your own pumpkin spice latte that you can make really easily and not have to drive to buy one in the single-use cup with a plastic lid and all that stuff. And it's really delicious. And here's a little bit of a challenge for you. See if you can wait until the fall equinox on September 23rd and then make your own and enjoy all of those wonderful flavors in season. That sounds so much fun. I can't wait for the episode to come out. I've made that homemade pumpkin spice latte once or twice before, but I'm looking forward to making it again. But I think I might wait until actual fall. And we also have other goodies coming up in the episode. You'll just have to tune in. We have some recipes and we have, of course, some discussion of the planting by the signs, which we include every month. So we hope you'll join us. And until then, please remember that the best way the good dirt grows is by you sharing it with people that you think might like it. Really appreciate you spreading the word on the show. And anytime if you're listening and you like what you hear, we love it when people screenshot and share their stories. That's a great way to spread the word. So we appreciate you so much. Keep listening, keep sharing, and let us know what your favorite episodes are. So today's episode is really exciting. And mom, I think you have a connection to one of our guests. And it goes a few years back, actually. So want to tell us about that and introduce them? Yes. Okay. In this episode, we had the joy of talking with mother and daughter, Krista and Fia Arias, coming to us from their home in Magdalena, New Mexico, where they run Tierra Soul Village Farm with the rest of their small family. I met Krista, virtually that is, several years ago when I stumbled on the wonderful Lazy Lady Living course, which has been such an important influence on my life in the years since, in my understanding of permaculture, ancient wisdom, indigenous ways, and so much so that I'm now working through it again for the second time. We'll talk more about Lazy Lady Living in the interview, and of course, there will be links in the show notes for you to check it out even further, but back to Krista and her daughter, Fia and their family-run project, Tierra Soul. Tierra Soul is a bee sanctuary, a honey spa, and an artist hive. It's a center for healing, liberation, and cultural repair, where people can find well-being and connection and belonging in an often confusing and complicated world. Krista Arias is a myth mender, an earth alchemist, and the creator of the Folklore Foods and Farming Program. Also, among other things, she is a nutritional therapist, a restorative justice enthusiast, a permaculture instructor, birth keeper, and death midwife. Krista has spent her lifetime exploring the dimensions of human experience in relation to the world and cosmos. Tierra's soul is infused with all she has learned and become. Fia Arias is keeper of the farm animals, big sister, daughter, and aspiring, sustainable, regenerative, and connected farmer. Her specialty is dairy. She has established a strong herd of mini Nubian dairy goats and has come to understand their genetics, knows their needs, and how to raise them as holistically as possible. Fia is 17 years old and has been homeschooled her whole life. She is currently completing her GED and pursuing a lifelong love of plant medicine and art. It was such fun to have this conversation with another mother-daughter team. Having a family business project is something we share in common with these two. And there's so much to talk about regarding their own slow living lifestyle that they've cultivated over these years. So here's Krista and Fia Arias of Tierra Soul. Many thanks to them for being with us and sharing their story. And for you listeners, we know you'll enjoy this one. 
Krista Arias of Tierra Soul, and I'm Fia Arias. She's my I'm daughter. The daughter. <laughs> We live in Magdalena, New Mexico, which is rural New Mexico in a small mountain town of about 500 people. And here we, this is our home base for our project, our ministry, technically, officially, Tierra Soul. And we do all kinds of things under that umbrella that have to do with healing, holistic living, connection to the earth, and earth-based spirituality, I guess one would say. And we do this through all kinds of things, little tools in our basket that we've gathered over many, many years. We originally began this project in Portland, Oregon. So we were in, in an urban environment, I mean, in 2008-ish. So it's been a long time. And, you know, some of those things are permaculture, trauma resolution, and lineage repair. So we work both in the material and the psycho-spiritual dimensions to really help connect ourselves and our communities and each other back into a sort of ancient and somewhat broken connection to the earth, to our spiritual natures. And, you know, that, of course, is a segue into a whole world of things. You know, that's very simply put. But, I mean, I guess, you know, in a way it's we do permaculture and farming and homesteading but also we are we're quite involved in this the spiritual dimension and as i said we're formed as just about a year ago we formed as ministry that's amazing and fia what do you do at tierra soul well i am really into the farm and the animals especially our goats so i'm an aspiring dairy farmer homesteader i'm not exactly a farmer <laughs> but i love the animals and i spend a lot of time with our herd and milking and bringing that in for our family in the cafe and a few people in the community. And yeah, I think probably my biggest involvement right now is with the animals. That's awesome. And so tell, can you speak a little more to the cafe? Cause that's where you're currently sitting, right? And what does that, do you guys run the cafe? Is that an outreach of your whole project? It's interesting. I was going to say, and Fia also as an extension of, you know, of course, we're all involved in everything, and we have also other members of our family, two other members of our family who are very involved. But Fia works mostly with the goats, but she also is a master dairy, you know, food producer. So she makes the most delicious goat milk ice cream and cheeses, and these are things that we offer to the community under the umbrella of our, I say, our community-supported kitchen, our membership-based and family-run cafe of sorts. It started with taking things, you know, a few years here in Magdalena in New Mexico, it started with taking things to the farm, baked goods to the farmer's market, just sort of throwing spaghetti on the wall, uh, you might say, to, to sort of see what, where, how do we fit into this community? We're new here and what can we offer? And and that um sp that just sort of went well, and we did that for a few years, and then we were like tired of schlepping everything, so we decided to invite people to come to where we are, and so we have this space, and we started out just on Fridays for a few hours, we called it Friday Bakery, and we said, "Come, your baked goods here." <laughs> Surprised, yeah. excited at the support we received, and the you know, and so we've grown our hours. We're now open three days a week from 10 a.m. to 9 p.m. And we also, that's in conjunction with our farm stand where we sell, you know, our farm crafted soaps and lotions and potions and also, 
you know, basic things. You know, in, in this town, when we moved in, there was a family dollar, and then we, there's, two, you know, and there are now they're putting in another dollar store. So you can get, in your 80-20 life, you can get any kind of crap you want. I mean, certain <laughs> amount of crap. But we wanted to offer something because there really isn't. So in addition to the baked goods, we offer basic, you know, dry goods. We have a bulk section and apothecary and, you know, uh basic stuff like maple syrup and honey and butter and, you know, and, and sort of centered around our milk. And it's, so that's, so that's, that's a kind full of a cafe. general mm-hmm. store cafe situation. Oh, that's awesome. When we lived in Portland, we had, we had like a building that was like an old storefront from the, it was built in like 1906. And it was like a, it was like, we call it the mercantile. So for, cause our plan was always to open a storefront there. And so it's kind of an extension of that. And, you know, in all the years we ran a bed and breakfast and in our urban kind of farm iteration, we had always had a farm stand that, you know, just that guests would get things from. It wasn't public so to speak. And this also isn't public. It's technically people who come in are members. And so we have agreements sort of outside of the public domain. We're operating in the private domain. That's so interesting. So it's like a co-op? Co-op, social club ministry. You know, you think like church bake sale or church, you know, many churches has kitchens and soup kitchens. And because what we're doing in terms of our spiritual practice is to the earth and to the land and that being sort of restoring that connection is central in in our spiritual you say teachings or practice it just makes sense and it's funny because for so long people always like mistake us for mistake quote unquote mistake us for a church and i'm like no we're not a you know and finally i I realized because we were looking into the structure and someone said they re- just read the copy on our website and they're like, oh, yeah, you is makes sense as a church. You are already doing it. So that's something that and my grandfather was a minister. So as a ministry, a ministry um, being defined as I hate to use the word institution, I will say entity that has a prescribed mission. You get to operate, for instance, like I'm thinking, we could do something similar. I'm, I'm so inspired. I'm going, we should do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> we could offer things like under what they call the, I think it's called the cottage laws, where, you know, we could bake the bread or make the things and it wouldn't have to go through the, like a the usual kitchen. hoops. Like a commercial kitchen. It would be like a bake sale. Like churches Is that how do yours that. works or do you have a commercial kitchen? We function basically a community supported kitchen. There was an example in San Francisco of Jessica Prentice began the Three Stone Hearth. And it was, uh, she called it, it was like community supported agriculture, only it was community supported kitchen. And basically it was like you sign up for shares and then every week you get, and you could pick what you ordered. I mean, I wasn't ever, ever ordered from her, but I observed the model and met someone who worked there for a while. And, you know, we talked about doing something there in Portland at one point. But so basically, I I mean, this is all legal stuff. So uh, what I understand, at least cottage food laws vary from state to state and probably the most comprehensive and like free laws are in Maine and Vermont, New Hampshire, those kind of places. Um, and, I, and there's where it's kind of separate from that even. So if under the umbrella of the ministry, it's we're not even uh, using the cottage laws com- separate, set apart from that. 
And part of it has to do with traditional techniques. In a, a lot of times, they're outlawed by health departments. Of course, you know, and so we're in relationship with our members. And, you know, we some of them, we do have double layers, like where we're like, okay, that that part, we we're, are go we plan to put under licensed kitchen, and this stuff we'll do here, and this stuff is under a herd share, and this stuff is under the cottage laws, kind of double up because the... Like, what is a ministry is an interesting question. And, you know, it has to do with having a deeply held belief relating to, I mean, I think, relating to spiritual life. And that's definitely something that we have. And Mary, as you know from taking our program, you know that it, it's like, I mean, now I'm calling it permaculture for the soulful. And there's a whole debate in permaculture about whether spirituality should be there or not. And to me, that's it's almost a sacrilege when permaculture has an, a sort of unarticulated debt to indigenous people who would never separate, quote-unquote, farming from spiritual life. It wouldn't occur to them that they would be separate. So permaculture, you know, so I think it's a sacrilege to not honor that. It's not even about including or not including. It's just what is to me from my perspective. Yeah, just like it speaks to the, the, the duality of our holes culture that we've been, you know, that we're now suffering the consequences of that. And it sort of harkens back to, to a time when there, that duality didn't exist amongst humans. You have to go back a pretty long way. It's, it, that's an interesting question. Also, when we think about duality, I think that there's like a bit of a conflation between sort of like the sort of computer kind of binary and duality, because really indigenous people pretty much everywhere, if you look at the Tao, there's like yin and yang. It's a whole, but it's made up of a duality. So a duality is like sacred. There's night and day, there's hot and cold, there's inside and outside. But a binary is something really different, where it's like on or off. Like you get yin or yang. You're night or day. And I think that, well, and, and this segues into a lot of other stuff that we'll talk about later, but it relates to trauma, you know, from my perspective, what I've kind of come to sort out is that it relates to trauma over many generations and decades that has set us up to really be vulnerable to adopting this, this binary because we become, our nervous system stops, stop flowing. Right. It's like a survival and, mechanism. Right. To just like be like, I'm, I'm on the right or I'm on the left, you know, and, and it's blasphemy almost to if you're on one side, to even have one thought bubble about the other side. And it's not about like being in the middle either. It's about being able to go back and forth and to be able to be in the day and to be in the night, to be in the hot and the cold and the wet and the dry and, the, and that these are all remedies for each other. And this is really, you know, and I think trauma just really uh, splits us, you know, it splits our nervous system. So we're not flowing and in flow and and so that's like I think what like a key way in which we work is not just through I mean it's not just a like okay think this way but it's a repair of this split thank you for making the, no yes thank you for making that distinction I really appreciate that I'm always learning from you Krista You're just, okay Fia I want to ask you you were born into Tierra Soul, 
you've grown up with these things. And what can you describe? And I'm going to ask you this to Christabel, I'll ask you first. You know, you were grown into it. So it's, it's not like you really came from something else. But was there a time in your childhood when you had a moment, I'll call it an aha moment, or a realization that, that yeah, this is for me. This is really speaks to me. And you can, you know, it, it, like maybe for the working with the animals or the, the becoming a, a, a dairy, shall we say, a dairy specialist where you not only get milk from the animals, but you create things out of it and you create them to share with the community. And you're sort of like the, the just, just some sort of feeling that like this is the direction for you. Well, I think being born into it, I that was my world. I never really had a different, like that was just my reality. But then, you know, as I got older and I started to interact with more people like outside of my close family, especially other people my age and realizing how different their lives were from mine. And I've always been Say hopelessly drawn to animals. I don't think I could live without them. My parents made uh, the the grave mistake of getting goats when I was very young, and so I caught the goat bug pretty early. And I have always been pretty clear that I wanted to be around them. And then I think just I spent a short stint in school. Sorry, it's storming outside. Yeah, it's, it's kind it's of wonderful. It's kind of wonderful. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> I spent a short stint in school right, in sixth grade and just spending time with other people who were living such different lives. I realized how unique and important to me it was to continue and, you know, in the future raise my children this way and just stay connected and close with the earth and food and my family. And yeah, so I, I think that just getting to know other other children my age really made me realize how much I valued the differences because I before that had just been you know everything I knew yeah normal yes and you mean to say when you were in school for a short time the rest of the time you were homeschooled or you are homeschooled yes okay yes I have been homeschooled pretty much and so why did you go to school for that short time I was trying to finish my PhD. Oh, got it. <laughs> and I was curious. Yeah. It was a good experience. Yeah, it's good to try but, it. I mean, I think School's mostly it was me. for the little one. I, that's the one. And she was like, I'll try it too. It was like a local charter Waldorf um, school. But but yeah, I remember Fia coming home and being like, they do stuff to try to just bug me and try to, and it's like a game that they have to try to get me to swear. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just things like, like oh. that. Like just sort of like. I'm curious now that you've had that experience and. And I was going to ask you this later, but I'll go ahead because we're into it. And I'm really curious. In what ways is your life a typical teenager life? Like, do you have a phone? Do you have social media? Do you go hang out with your friends and all that kind of thing? I think we already know how it's not typical, but yeah. And, you know, we hear so much today about how hard it is for teenagers. You know, their emotional isolation and all these things. And, you know, just where do you fit into it? all that. If, and if this is too personal, don't answer it. You don't have to say anything you're uncomfortable with. Just, I'd love to hear you talk about those things. It's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I do have a phone. I do have social media. It's somewhat limited and mostly used for buying and selling goats. <laughs> <laughs> 
Good for you. <laughs> but I do have it. I, living in such a small town, I've never had a lot of friends. And so I have like three really close friends, which is pretty much all I've felt I needed. And so they are still in Portland and one is in Arizona. So I don't spend a lot of time out with friends or doing that kind of thing. Like, like I a think, typical teenager. Think about like, like, you know, like I think a lot of teenagers, it, it's this time of individuation. Like many things, I think there's the like, what, what it was like, the potty joke phase or whatever. And we're like, we never had that with our kids. Like it's, <laughs> but it's supposedly a phase. There's lots of things that I think culturally get propagandized really as developmental that are, really aren't. However, you know, however, so teasing out what is, like as a parent, like what is, and adolescence is certainly like a key time for that, right? Like what is cultural and what is necessary human individuation? And, you know, of course that all, that is probably relative to a degree, but her, you know, she didn't have a phone growing up. She's my son who's 13 doesn't have a phone. But at a certain point, it's like she needs to practice self-regulation with it. And, you know, I am still, get off your phone. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but, That's yeah. typical, I'm sure. I do it too, Krista. <laughs> <laughs> Emma, 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 get off your oh, phone. Emma, Emma, yeah. <laughs> and she's yeah. pretty too, so. And, like, how the, the role as mother shifts as she becomes an adult. But we also have this sort of cultural, ancestral, you know, Mexican, you know, ethos that we kind of hold dear and sacred that is different, you know, that families, you know, launching your child off into the world as a separate entity is not, they've been trained since childhood that that's not how we do it. And that it's not though that she won't, in, that, you know, Mexican people don't ever individuate <laughs> either, you know, they don't ever have professions or, but it's like a different model. I mean, okay, an example would be like, this is different from like, the Mexican piece or indigeneity or anything like that, but just like I grew up in Canada. When you go to college, the culture around it is just you go to the local college and they're all, you know, public and they're all pretty much the same. And if you go to grad school, then you might pick somewhere and you live at home. You know, you go to the local and you live at home. So that's like a little closer to what we would, whereas, you know, in the U.S. we're discovering uh, through her friends that it's like a thing where when you go to college, you look for a college all over the United States and it's like five times the cost if you go out of your state and that's expected and you're not really, it's like a different, you're in a different class if you don't do that or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, are you going to go to college? Do you think? I think so. I think so. I Do you think I you'll go away or do you think you'll stick around and do you know what you want to study? I'll definitely stick around. I have a lot of dependents. Yeah. <laughs> and And you have your goats. Your goat exactly. Business, yeah. I can't. They they need me. And so do you have a do you have a school nearby? A few hours away. Yeah, I'm that I'm thinking about. So, Krista, I'm really curious about hearing about your background in a broad sense, and what brought you to this, the work that you're doing now. And did you have an aha moment, or did you have a time when this? You, things went in this direction. Was there a before and after? <clears throat> That's an interesting question. Like, you know, I think like some of it has to do with, you know, like Fia was talking about like how you, how you grew up. I mean, there are certain things that have carried forward. You know, my mother was born in small town, Alaska, like really small town, like you have to fly in kind of, and she moved to other small towns, but mostly she 
really grew up in, and her father was, was a missionary minister who was a preacher in the town that she lived. But it's really, but like Alaska, I mean, and then she moved to Seattle, to the United States, to, to the United States, to the whatever, the mainland, I don't know what you call it, the lower 40, uh, 50, the lower whatever, For, yeah, anyway. 48, I don't 48. know. I'm saying the back 50, the something. <laughs> well, but like things like that, I don't have, I yeah. don't know, because I just didn't grow up with single mother, you know, I was born in 1970, so this was, you know, really a threshold time when, you know, my mom was a teacher before 1970, you, you couldn't have a child out of wedlock and still be a teacher, and so she really... At that point, she couldn't ha be a teacher. She had to, so she ended up becoming a computer programmer, which is sort of interesting. But the point is that she really was, you know, you could say culturally set apart from, she moved to another culture from Alaska too. So like, I didn't know who John Lennon was when he got shot. Like, I didn't really know. It's uh, like you were from another country. Right, kind of like Alaska. Yeah. <laughs> Alaska is very, you know, different. <laughs> yeah. So you grew up, did you grow up? In where, Canada, did you say? I grew up in, I was born in Seattle, and then I moved to British Columbia when I was 10. So just the part that I'm, ta I'm speaking about, it was really that I, I just didn't really fit in. And then also, I think that move to Canada also was another sort of level of moving somewhere and not really fitting in. And, of course, my visible ethnicity, I think, also being in Canada, which is a very British kind of milieu, I definitely stood out and was, you know, so there was these ways in which I didn't really fit in that I think are a part of, you know, when I was very young in Canada, sort of like adolescence, I, I would say I had the cosmic, you know, opportunity to be initiated into like, in Canada, they would say Aboriginal or Indigenous or Native, you know, history, teachings and ceremony. So that I think was a turning point for me where like in terms, and there's like echoes, like sort of cycling back through that of, you know, but this, I sat in my first sweat lodge at that time and met with, you know, we would say, you know, medicine people. It's sort of like when you're outside of like being at a ceremonial gathering, the w way that medicine, the term medicine people is used is it gets sort of converted a little. I was at that time, I think offered teachings, but also obligations. And how old were you then? Young adult? I was like 18, 19. And who was teaching you these things? What is it, a relative? And you speak of your ethnicity. My father's Mexican. And so it was kind of, my father wasn't in my life growing up. I mean, when I did meet him, you see pictures, everyone's like, oh, that's where you came from. Like, I just really stood out. I was asked constantly was I was adopted anytime me and my mother were together. So it was always a thing for me. And, I, and this is, gets into the sort of like the spiritual dimension of material reality in that I sort of always asked that question. And I always had a, a sort of inner, just a knowing about myself that, and it was interesting though, that I was raised in the North, like nowhere, I'd never been anywhere near Mexico. Although, let me think, I think that I did go looking for my father when I was 17. And so it was after that, that I came back to Canada. So I'd been to Mexico and I had sort of 
seen Indigenous people there and been, I didn't hear a word of lick of English for months. It was crazy when I think about it now, like 17 in, you know, 1987. Would you let see that? No. No. Oh my gosh. But I came back alive. But it also, that was a turning point too. I mean, it was really like, I, it was like really cracked me open. And I went into like a pretty deep, what I think the West would call depression, but it was like a a swimming in the underworld, a swimming in the unknown, a swimming in the known in my own body. And anyway, I came back and was, and just, I was brought by, you know, just a Canadian friend to the ceremonial gathering. I didn't, I just was going with her. And she, you know, I say she was a white lady. And, but she took me to this thing and just again, cracked me right open. And I had, I remember going to being spoken to by one elder and then going to be like, oh my gosh, and going to another elder. At the same time, I would, I had absolute recognition, but also, what are you talking about? Because I don't know if you've sat with indigenous elders or native elders, but it's a very particular experience. And in general, not to universalize too much, but to acknowledge that I am a little bit, that indigenous people think about the difference between rights and responsibilities. I think that in general, we don't, indigenous people don't fight for their rights so much as they embrace their responsibilities. So that if you think of anything, it shifts the kind of ego paradigm around anything. Like if you are a healer, I have a right to be a healer versus I have the responsibility to be a healer or a teacher or a whatever it is that is your work, your calling in the world. So that's how I carry it as obligations. But it was also sort of like, it was like I was given a window into my destiny or my, you know, my obligations, my calling, my work. And then after that, I was invited to sit in the sweat house, which was had a very profound experience there in the, in the lodge that set the stage for everything. So if you talk about like a, you know, an aha moment, that was like the beginning. And then sort of, you know, I think, you know, sitting in the sweat house, I think, you know, circling around, you know, giving birth, that's a ceremony that is very, if when you look at it, contemplate it, it's very similar. And I think that that was another moment where I was like, really reminded profoundly and strongly what I was to do in this life. So really the whole constellation of Tierra Soul is, you know, it's our family together because that's our a sacred unit as well. But that in terms of my contribution to it, that's a big, you know, it's sort of this, the idea of indigenous soul, which I first heard from Martine Prechtel. Francesca Mason Boring, who is a family constellation practitioner and also a member of the Shoshone Nation. And she, you know, talks about how every one of us, if you go back far enough, we all come from the tent. There's, you go back far enough, there's still the one that, before the trauma, that if we can repair that lineage, then that can move through us. Like, literally, we can be supported by our ancestors. Well, from my perspective, it seems like there is more and more acknowledgement and appreciation of indigeneity because, and I'll get to this question too, permaculture is about more than farming or gardening or how you handle your the things you grow. It's about so much more than that. And so we're bringing forward, I think, more and more in the mainstream, these methods and these understandings and this way of relating to the land because we understand that, you know, the way that we've related to the land for many thousands of years now is threatening our survival. There were many, many, many thousands of years before that when indigenous humans were able to do this without 
threatening their survival. And so one of the things you're referring to when you talk about the trauma, where we broke from that, and now more and more of us are waking up to the fact that we are we are threatened. We're threatening ourselves and, and looking back to these things. So you're teaching and your work at Tirasol and your lazy lady living and myth mending and all this stuff and incorporating all of it in is so relevant. And that's why I've just enjoyed so much studying with you and, and following your work and so forth. So I want to hear, I want to tell the audience about lazy lady living. And what is that? That is the program that was brought to my awareness and where I first entered into your work. Talk to us about it and what is that and what's lazy about it. And Thea, what's your take on lazy lady living somewhere in there? Give you a chance to talk about it too. <laughs> okay. So I think you're right. You're absolutely right that there's sort of a, you know, an indigenous renaissance and there's a grappling with what that means. And, but it's interesting because lazy lady living now is more than 10 years old. And since we first did the first kind of like draft run of it, in, I think it was 2011 or something, or 12 maybe. And so at the time when I began it, I knew there's this idea, one of the things I want, I needed to articulate and that I'm wanting to kind of hold space and support the grappling of is the sort of how do we, our quote unquote indigenous soul, as Martine Prechtel describes it, or our indigeneity or our indigenous self, while also like understanding the perils of cultural misappropriation. And that's like something that I, I make a distinction between cultural appropriation and misappropriation because, you know, in Gloria Anzaldúa, in, in my lineage, in indigenous mind, the stone might be my relative. So I say my lineage of Gloria Anzaldúa, it's not quite the same as like a genealogy, but the teachings of Gloria Anzaldúa are powerful and I carry them. And so she talks about appropriation, you know, like as an artist, for example, that that's just what artists do all the time. And there is a way in which appropriation is how we might even remember something. So I have a whole you know, method of how you can use appropriation without then misappropriating, which is a step further and maybe getting stuck due to trauma in a repetition. And that we can do with our own cultural traditions as well. Like, And it's a fine balance between taking something out of tradition and misappropriating it and being stuck. That's the other pitfall on the other side is being stuck in repeating it exactly how it was, exactly how it was, because traditions always evolved. They say even that the the curanderas in Central America, they say even the plants shifted their medicine to help with trauma when after the trauma of colonization. So appropriation and misappropriation and how we can restore this indigenous soul without, so, and you know, and that is the grappling, I think the greater grappling. And there's like a, how do we do this so that we are healing and moving forward, not pointing fingers, not that we need to just let things go rampant that are misappropriations either. But And this is, the I think, the trauma healing, why I kind of like just step back from all that and get to the trauma healing, because that's ultimately the constitutional, physiological, psycho-spiritual break and fragmentation that makes us vulnerable to misappropriating or to being stuck in like a cultural blind repetition. And even then like dismissing creative evolutions that the plants teach us is the way of nature and being. And so when you think about lazy lady living, you think about laziness, 
When I was in, young and in college, back a long time ago, and this one roommate, we always would say, I'm not lazy. We're not lazy. We're efficient. You know, like when you wouldn't read the book, but write the paper, you know, like stuff, you know, it's like sometimes when you're playing the game, you just got to play the game. And so in, in the course, you know, when I took it for the first time, lazy, letting, living, what is that? The message comes across. Tell me if this is what you intended. If you're going to distill it into like a, just a couple of thoughts is like, if you work with the earth, if you work with nature and you enter in to the rhythms and the flow, then you're not fighting and you're making so much less work for yourself. Things happen and you can sit back and watch and go, wow, that happened, that grew, that evolved, that problem resolved, and I wasn't fighting it every square inch of the way. Lazy lady living in terms of like farming or gardening or permaculture is different. And I think permaculture has this in it, is that it's not about learning the how-tos and the rules and the zones and the, it's about retraining and remembering and restoring ourselves and our bodies as earth. And this is an indigenous, there's a, an Okanagan word for body includes the word for earth. So there's this sort of like linguistic indigenous from this particular cultural group so that we're remembering ourselves, not like our bodies, not even just in relationship to earth or emulating earth or, or nature, but that as a part of nature so that we, and that is efficient, not lazy. I mean, lazy if it, you know, I'm sort of joking, but like how, and it, and it relates to the education too. Like how I have, I, I, I sort of joke, I have this thing called bibliosmosis where I just sleep with the books and I don't necessarily read them. And there, like this idea that your dream life is, is valid, you know, and it, I sort of joke about it in tongue in cheek because really how I can't really be serious about that. But that was a kernel in this, I'm not lazy, I'm efficient, which is like the Western mind can understand. But what I'm really saying is like, I'm going to dream and it's going to come to me in a dream and then I'm going to write that. Yeah. It's a trust. It's your, back to what you were saying earlier in the conversation about like the individuation and the separation from the family and and going off and doing your own thing, it's it's the reverse of that. It's becoming more a part of it and accepting a reliance on it. And as you were saying, the both the physical and the metaphysical, the spiritual all together and sort of stepping into the river and like the flow and trusting it instead of thinking that you have to go over here and dig your own river and fill it up with water and figure out how to make it go, which is, I think, what most people do. And it's kind of... Like an, like I say, an indigenous, like I think about FIA and going to college and like, like indigenous education, it's sort of like, you know, it's more indigenous when the more unconscious it is in it happening. And I think that that way of being in college of like, well, I'm going to sleep with this book tonight and then trust when I open it, that'll be in the, I'll find a quote that, I mean, I just sort of had this weird practice that when I finally went back to do my PhD and I was in indigenous studies and you, we share with other native students their processes and how really resonant they were with this weird thing that I did all the way to get through. But efficient is kind of like a way to talk about it. I mean, I don't, I mean, like really lazy, like the good life that this is, there is like a quote unquote Western corollary. This isn't just for some 
beings on the earth. It's for everyone. And but we, you know, it's a really taking that with care because it doesn't mean like, oh, do whatever either. You, you know, so but anyway, Sophia going to college is and how we're navigating that is, you know, how can be lazy? <laughs> how can you go to college and it also makes me think of the appropriation and misappropriation and the duckness that you're saying. So in things like, and this is, you know, I've been out of college now 10 years and now, now I'm entering that I'm about to get married and do the whole thing. And all along, I think it's been graduating high school started the journey of just constant anxiety about, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? And I think we all share a little bit of that unless we're so lucky to be brought up in the womb of a place like Tierra Soul, I imagine we want to do what we're supposed to be doing, right? Or what we're meant to do. And so we want to do that. So plenty of institutions and, and traditions have been put in place, literally capitalize on that. So, oh, all these young adolescents across the country want to get higher education. Here's a really expensive way to do that. And you have to do it or you're weird all the way up to, oh, you want to get married. You want to engage in this longstanding tradition of uniting with another person for all of these reasons. Here's how you do this. It's very expensive. And here's how you're supposed to do it all the way through having kids. All, you know, I imagine buying like everything that I can think that we're supposed to do. Dying. Dying. How how you're supposed to celebrate (laughs) how you die. I, I meant to ask you this earlier, too, in regards to your cafe. It sounds like what you're doing is a little bit outside the system of a normal capitalist cafe restaurant. (laughs) And so I think, I don't know really the point that I'm trying to make, but I think it's really interesting how it's all sort of connecting and this idea of misappropriating these traditions of these beautiful traditions of going off to get an education. That's a beautiful tradition that can be really misappropriated and misconstrued into doing something you think you're supposed to do but maybe you don't have to in that way, right? Reject college outright. Like she's not going. You don't have to do that either. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. There's, there's, it's like, you know, and I've done a lot of like, you know, like three master's degrees and a PhD, like a separate PhD than the three, like, and it's, and it's always been like looking for what's resonant because in a way I'm like sort of like bicultural in that I, I grew up and carry this sort of ancestry, like whether I was raised by my father or not, which I did meet him eventually, and that's a whole story, but, and it was very healing, but I, I carry the ancestry of both of these lines. And I think that that's been a big, often unconscious even motivator and driver of this way that I've, I've always gone to colleges. I went to the Evergreen State College because it was seemed more organic, like more like an unconscious, this unconscious education where you take one program, not five different courses. And you never know in a lecture, like, are you studying this right now? Are you studying anthropology right now? Are you doing math? Or, you you know, that it's life is whole. And so that's, but then I also went to St. John's College where, you know, you study the dead white men. And I found the spirit of inquiry in the seminar room space there to be so profound and deep, thoughtful, and really ceremonial in a way. And so I've always been like looking for the ways that indigenous ceremony and Western ceremony, like where are they resonant? So as clues for what we might need, because you know, I've always been a truth seeker. What's the point of all this? And, and it turns out that being connected to food, the materiality outside of us that becomes, we eat and it becomes part of our body. And that relates to being a mother. You know, you, you breastfeed your child. 
your body makes milk that goes into their body and becomes their body. Like how, how sacred is that? You know, so totally. Leanne Simpson, she talks about breastfeeding as the first relationship. And that's how we learn about reciprocity and reciprocity being like a, a very core indigenous value and teaching. What do we retain and join? Because the point is to remember, restore, you know, repair and create culture that is good, that, that functions in a good way. Yes. And I, I want to ask Fia, you have this whole, as Emma put it, this womb of Terrasol. You can sort of make your way within it and kind of do whatever you want. You, you found your way right now with the, the dairy goats and so forth. And so what pulls you, if anything, like outward to embrace, like in terms of college or further education or you're sort of in that coming of age window, what pulls you outward if anything, from the larger culture to go study or embrace or explore, you know, you could bring back in? Well, I'm very curious. I love to think and have been supported to be interested and curious about college from my mama. You know, I've been wonderfully sheltered in many ways and protected and I want to learn about other things and I feel very, I think I'm very lucky because I have the ability to learn and be curious and expand and push myself without having to leave and abandon and split from my family and my childhood and I have a lot of options I guess in that I don't have the rush and the pressure and the stress of okay, you need to do this, and then you need to do this, and then you need to do this, and it all needs to happen on this timeline, and I don't have a lot of that. And obviously, I'm still affected by the pressures in the world. I'm not completely, we were talking about that earlier, how I, we are still living in this world that has these ideals and expectations. And so having close friends who are being more affected by that than I am and then I'm getting it through them and I don't know I often feel a bit strange or odd or even ashamed of the things that I want to pursue in my life and it's kind of a constant struggle and like a fight within myself to not cave and become someone else but it's also something that I'm very committed to because I want to be different and I want to do something different. And well, I think the intention is for you to feel safe to go explore or, or do whatever that you want to. So you're not told you can't like the trope of parents forbidding their children to do something and they that makes them so determined to do it anyway, you know, almost almost like it's, it's a pushback or a rebellion or something. Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. I wonder. Yeah. Well, we talk a lot about the polarities in life and the past three years have been so odd too that like going to college or all of that has the way it's do, being done is shifted and time has kind of stood still and so she's approaching 18 and yeah I mean I even feel the pressure through her friends like such and such friend is going to college and that's the only you know that's going to be the way that she comes out feeling sort of you don't want to reject college because you don't want to do that, but you also don't want to go because if you don't, then you're nothing. And college is shifting. Like what the universe, like 
what that provides is, I mean, I've always been one for told them, okay, if we don't spend money on like fancy homeschool curriculums for high school, then we have that money for college. And I really made them something like almost a requirement I made for them. But then, you know, it's really interesting because I have all this education, you know, and really kind of I went to alternative schools. So I, I'm not really like a mainstream academic, but, you know, I'm married to a man who literally got his GED. So there's also kind of a snobbery that could come with lots of education that I think she feels. But in our family, it's like both she sees both, you know, options as totally fine. Like, what's the point of life? Then when you remember what the point of life is, then you kind of can free up your choices. So I'm I'm curious what she has. To, you have told me that you want to take a trip to Europe. So with her, <laughs> you should do it. That's cool. You should do it. Well, you know, I'll tell you a little story. I, I, I feel like my kids came of age at a time when the expectations were pretty set. And since that time, like Emma, she graduated 10 years ago. And I had three kids. So, you know, we were in the whole college thing for several years before that. But I would do it over again if I had the chance, I think, as a parent in the guidance of it. I think I would be more in the direction of where you are, Krista, is like, you know, you can do other things. This is not a prescription. This is not a requirement. There are other options. And I just, I've evolved too. And I have to, I have to And I do think it is a different time. I think there is it more is now totally. than there was in 2005 when the first one of us started going to college. So, And now it's, it's, it's become so absurdly expensive that it can't be the common option that it, that it was at some time. No, well, it's interesting. I mean, I get the pressure. I sometimes, like even with uh, homeschooling, like we're unschoolers. Like it's not, I mean, every once in a while they'll all like have a panic because, you know, the the kind of dominant narrative gets in like, you're, if you don't do this by this age, your brain just won't be right. <laughs> it's like kind of thing or like, I should have more structure or that, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But then I remember, you know, we have structure. It's a different kind of structure. It's more like a curation. Our time is very structured, but it's more about the sun rises and the sun sets and the animals have needs. And that's, it's still a, a discipline and a practice. It's just not the alarm clock goes off at this time. And then you're doing an hour of this and an hour. I worry for my children of like, how are they going to, we, me and David apologized to them. We're like, we're so sorry. Like, it's going to be weird. And, <laughs> man, you are really... Have you oh. guys seen the movie Captain Fantastic? Yes. Oh. <laughs> that's what I remember. <laughs> Nailed it. Yeah, that's... I mean, those kids are great. I mean, if that's your life, that's yeah, amazing. Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. But it's also, we do live in these times like everyone else, and it's also troubled. Well, I still want to hear you talk about lazy lady living. What's your involvement in that course? And how do you embrace that? Well, it was made when I was pretty little, so originally I was not super involved, but I'm getting a little bit more involved now and hoping to update the, the goat section. For me, I think what I come back to when I think about Lazy Lady Living, what's lazy about it, I go back to the concept of doing the smallest thing that will make the biggest difference. I feel like especially with animals, everyone's always trying to do these big things, these like just getting more and more complicated and bigger and better and more expensive and more, all of these things. And I feel a certain amount of pressure to like, oh, like I'm not, that that's, I'm bad because I'm not doing that. But then coming back to, okay, look at our situation, our lives and what is 
the smallest thing that I can do that would make the biggest difference for me and for them and what we're doing every day. And there's so much relief in that, like dropping the pressure and just actually being with what is and like, and usually that small thing can change everything. And I didn't need to go build a whole new area for the animals because the one we have sucks. I just needed to, you know, change the way this gate closed and <laughs> put a few rocks here and rearrange a little thing. And sometimes it just takes time. Mm -hmm. That can be the biggest thing, patience, yeah. for that one small thing to occur to, to us. Mm -hmm. Like you were talking about the cow, we were talking about the cow recently, we were like, okay, we have, we just sort of were stalled on this barn building project, which we're just building by hand, little, well, I mean, you can talk and about it. And a big thing that was holding me back was our cow, because she is, was big. And the goats, you can just have a really small, sweet little thing, and they all fit, no problem. But the cow, suddenly there's this whole new obstacle of, okay, how do I fit Millie into this arrangement? And I have to have a new pen and a new, and then I'm bringing the milk back and forth between two places. And it just... And it's like, you know, a lot of milk from one animal every day. And and it's partly like, I think, as a family, really, me and David and I, as parents, I guess, we're, it's been like a dream, a lifetime dream to have like a family cow where we can have butter. And like the cow was like this sort of like, Thing, right then, and, and I love cows. Cows are incredibly <laughs> wonderful. They're amazing animals. I realized when we were on a little trip that it wasn't working for me. The goats and I, I don't know, we get each other. And I loved our cow. I still love her. But for what I was able to do and what made sense for me and just being able to keep up with everything, we ended up making the decision to find her a new home and stick with the goats. And it was not an easy choice, but I'm so happy with the decision and I feel so much more able to manage everything now. And So building that barn feels a lot lazier now. <laughs> yeah, so now I feel like I can just build the barn and there's no... It's not so hard and complicated and... Yeah. And one of the pieces that, like, I know, because I was holding on to the cow, like, oh, but the, you know, being involved with the Weston A. Price Foundation, there's, like, the butter and the yellow of it and how it has the X-Facts or the vitamin K, you know, like, it's, like, this special thing. But And so we just finally did a bit of research, like, cow milk versus goat milk, and David started it, and then Fia continued it, and it's, like, goat milk is just better, and it has vitamin K. It just it doesn't... It actually has more vitamin K than cow milk. <laughs> it just doesn't get the yellow color. You're not going to believe this. My husband and I were just having this conversation about an hour before this interview. Well, he just said out of the blue, I wouldn't mind having a milk cow. We just, and, but, you know, as you know, that's taking on a big thing. And then at, like a huge, that would be adding its gigantic layer of maintenance and not laziness, it feels like. But, but we would both kind of love it. We're both kind of drawn to it. And the world over, goats are used. I mean, we've come to love goat meat, like goat sausage and goat carnitas, although that's goat whatever tamale feeling it's and we were kind of like oh it's a kind of when you would think about permaculture and design it's like an epiphany that can be it's part of the design of your system that yeah it's smaller just smaller, smaller yeah and then he, then he started talking about the goat milk he goes you know I, and he was visiting this farm where he buys his hay and he goes you know she gave me a glass of the fresh goat milk and it was so delicious it was the most delicious thing i've ever tasted in my life he said you think it's going to be goaty 
and yeasty and goes, it's not because they feed it really well. So I'm going to relay this conversation to him. It's really true. And part <laughs> of it is we've noticed people want the goat milk more than the cow. We brought this cow in thinking, yay, now it's like A2, A2, Jersey. And no one wanted the cow milk. But also there's also those people who are like, which we've experienced for like the past 15 years of having goats and goat milk, people are like, oh, I don't like goat milk or I don't like goat meat or, you know, but then we cook for them and and we give them a taster, you know, taste the goat next to the cow, both raw, both fresh. We don't even ask them, which do you think is the goat? We say, which is more delicious? And they always pick our goat milk, but it does have to do with how you feed them. We have now, since we've been doing it so long, there are some goats that yeah, it is sometimes genetic. You, they just you just can't get the flavor, the, flavor? the goaty mm-hmm. flavor out. Interesting. What kind of goats do you have? I'm just curious. We have mini Nubians. I absolutely adore them for their high fat content, but they're also smaller. The Nigerian dwarves have the higher fat, but they're like tiny and like and milk. they're really really springy and crazy. <laughs> yeah. Like I love them. I love them. They're great. They're adorable, but they are the goats who will like jump a six foot fence from a standstill consistently. And also like permaculture wise or like being in place as you know, is sort of like part of the more contemporary conversation about like relating to place and ideas of place is that we live in the desert. And although we're planting trees and we're, you know, thinking about encouraging the grasses and restorational grazing, et cetera, goats in Spain, like similar country as here, goats, it's just around the world. Goats can survive. They eat, they don't they just eat, eat grass. They dig the up cow- roots. They Yeah. They can survive on a more diverse diet, not just like decimate the one thing, you know, like the overgrazing. Yeah, that's permaculture. That's permaculture. That's working with yeah. Let me tell you about what it's like to drift to sleep on a 100% natural wool pillow sourced from regenerative farms wrapped in a lovingly handmade organic cotton pillowcase. Oh wait, I can't. I think it's just something you're going to have to try for yourself. Holy Lamb Organics is proud to carry on a centuries-old tradition of making beautiful textile products by hand. Combining heritage methods with pristine natural and organic materials and sustainable business practices, they bring a dedication to healthy living and the environment. Everything Holy Lamb does reflects their devotion to the planet and its inhabitants. From their supply chain to their manufacturing processes to their facilities management, nothing happens without considering the environmental impact. Most importantly, they're also dedicated to fair labor practices, secure working conditions, diversity, and inclusion. From the farm to the mill to their partner manufacturers, everyone shares the same high ideals of a safe, respectful workplace and environmentally conscious methods. Making good products enables them to do good work. Every time we order something from Holy Lamb Organics, we're proud to support a small town made in America company. You can find Holy Lamb Organics in the Lady Farmer Marketplace. For additional marketplace discounts, you can join the Almanac, our member-supported community platform. Find Holy Lamb Organics products including pillows, sheets, natural wool comforters, and more in the bedding section of the Lady Farmer Marketplace at www.ladyfarmer.com. Back to the cafe. I'm just wondering what the experience <laughs> is like for, it sounds like it's a co-op membership. So, so can someone, can anyone come into your cafe and buy something like regular store or is it sort of like... Is it, does it work differently? This is experimental. 
And so, but the right now, the way it works is that it's kind of different layers of things and they're, but all in one place. <laughs> so there's some that's like a full business and would be subject to licensure. And that part we haven't really, that's like in development because we're doing, we're doing as little of that as possible, but we're creating a, a domain where that can exist so that it's ready if we need to sh pop things over. We're always thinking about how we will function different like alternative routes and pivots that we can make as we learn and as we engage with the community. Right now, it's just been growing organically and I did not necessarily think this was the spaghetti that we threw on the wall that was gonna stick. stick. Right. But Well, people love a place, you know, that third, that idea of a third yeah. place to gather and to- And the, the community, it's just, I mean, it's beautiful. It's, I mean, vibrant and rich and people come in, we can maybe send you a couple pictures and they like literally, Oh, hey, like you, it's like, who's going to be there and who am I going to sit with today? And like, you know, people, there's a group that comes every Friday and they, they call it book club. Yeah. <laughs> they, rarely they rarely read the book. <laughs> you know, they kind of have like a philosophical gestalt or something to their group too. And, you know, it's, so it's, and we have the, uh, like an old time record player, we have records playing. So it's very, I think it harkens and it sort of like triggers this sort of nostalgia, this living into nostalgia but like made real not just like a nostalgia to avoid like that's so utopian that it can never be lived you know so that you then are never living life which you know it's, um <laughs> which is like kind of a uh, I love a, this just seeking alternatives to current systems yes this is what it is seeking alternatives to current systems and if this one doesn't work we'll find another one you know or we'll move to Mexico or we'll like you know we will continue to create community yeah, and so it's really wonderful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it came out of a quite troubling phase. Yeah. It's a lot of work, and I food service is not my thing, you know. So in terms of the ministry, part, piece of it is that one of the, like whenever we're starting, you're not sure what direction to go or like something maybe feels like it's bubbling up that isn't feeling great or something, we all, we tend to return to this text. It's the Haudenosaunee Thanksgiving Address, which is kind of our, one of our, family touchstones anyway and we'll read it together and we can even when we're because we read it so many times in a pinch we can sort of like quickly just sort of recap it together and it's about in our honoring of the land and the water and the air and all the creatures therein and the medicine keepers and the cosmos and the you know all, all of the different parts of creation through this all our minds are one and that's like this refrain throughout it. And now our minds are one. We honor this and now our minds are one. Through this honoring, our minds are one. And this is the spirit that we bring ourselves back to and then offer. And that's really, I think, there's more, of course, the whole, all the constellation around myth mending, but it's a kind of a, a core to the ministry piece. And, you know, we are building a sweat house and that's something that we will, that's like the, the sanctuary. That is a big piece of this as well but it's not like separate it's kind of i don't know there's a way in which the spirit of the place here is similar to the spirit in the sweat house we always ask our guests what does slow living mean to you that you we've been talking so much about lazy lady living so i just right. i wanted well, so, to ask I mean, and you asked is slow living similar to lazy lady living and i think that like if i think about it the difference is that slow living is a the destination and lazy lady living is the 
direction, a methodology maybe even of how we might get there. Because one of the things I notice is that when people, myself included, start getting connected to the land, the first thing that happens is a kind of detox. <laughs> and like it really will stimulate traumas to come up or, you know, and that's why there's sometimes a resistance, I think, to connected to the land. And we think about like more traumatized communities having sort of that's the way we're traumatized, but also it's a symptom of it. So, so yeah, so I think lazy lady, I think that they are very related. And I think slow living is like a piece of, you know, like the cafe on the back of the menu, there's like my paraphrase of the slow, the slow food manifesto, you know, mm. it is about more than, it's not a restaurant, like we're not a restaurant, even though on Google Maps, we're listed as a restaurant, we are not just the only category that, and we can't control Google Maps. Someone put us on there. So, so I think like, it's definitely, you know, simplicity returning to this. And it's hard. It's really hard running a cafe. It's so, that's so much work and how to remind ourselves and we read that and now our minds are one, we honor the earth. Like, what are we really doing here? And to remember to continue that and to not slip into being what people expect and project, like you're a restaurant and, and you serve me. It's like, it's a community supported kitchen. You're a member and like remembering to like articulate that to people when they come in and to remind ourselves. Slowing down can be a remedy, but I think the myth, and this sort of segues into myth mending as the part of the Tirasol ministry that is, how do we do this? The methodology, the remedy, the way to actually get there when there is like real obstacles and not just individual, but cultural or community obstacles toward, you know, between us and slow living. And there's a lot of influences in myth mending, but the idea basically, I mean, hours contemplating the name and rejecting a lot of names and feeling into like this name myth mending. And, and it relates to trauma. There's this idea in trauma studies that there's like navigated trauma and unnavigated trauma. There's trauma that we experience that we get through and we fight it and we succeed or we flee and we get away and that we get through it and it builds resilience. But there's trauma that isn't resolved. And this is the stuff that by decimating language and ceremony in indigenous cultures, the wave that happened all over Europe, that is the decimating these healing paradigms that left us with unresolved traumas because the ceremonies that we would have had would be the things that held us, even trained our systems to know how to navigate trauma, to fight or to flee and to, to build, give it resilience. But also when we hit one that we didn't navigate as a way to complete it. And there's this idea in trauma studies that when we have a trauma that we can't assimilate or navigate, that it kind of goes into the unconscious and runs us through patterns, et cetera, of ways of avoiding it coming up again. And so, and there's kind of like the story that comes out of that experience is very different than once you then complete it, the story that happens there. And we think about our mythologies, it's almost when we, if we can mend our myths, this trauma resolution is the way that we do mend our myths and have stories that are, I think like growing up, I had, there was this one line, like I was, you know, my father, like I'd never met my father. I'd never seen a picture of him. I just had this one line. This was my whole story about my father. It was like, he was Mexican. He was from this small town. You know, he left before I was born. Literally, that was everything. 
And this was like that our mythologies are, if you think about mythology, these are the stories that they're the images that our souls live into. And that was what I had. But then after, you know, this initiation into the sweat house and giving birth and meeting my father and meeting my grandmother and learning to make tamales and mole and going to danza and different experiences and doing this work, I have a much richer and nuanced and mended myth. So that's kind of what myth mending is all about. And it's, it's really based in what was it resonant with out there in the Western world? So, you know, in anthroposophy, there's like curative story and somatic experiencing is a trauma resolution paradigm that Peter Levine developed for the Western mind, for therapists. I don't know how many, 20 something plus years into it, he acknowledged that the debt he had to indigenous people, because that's really, it was a shamanic methodology that he was trying to like untrained therapists from their training and like teach them this paradigm because it was something that the, the western mind would say yes to so that's i became i trained as a somatic experiencing practitioner dream craft i did a master's in depth psych, in archetypal psychology so these are things that i was like oh this resonates this resonates so that i could develop something that would be accessible that is really like a, I don't know, like a human paradigm. P, you offer these things at Tierra Soul in, in terms of coursework or private consult or so someone can access experiences of these things through Tierra Soul, correct? Yes. Okay. And you have a myth mending course. Is that what it is? It's called Soft Animal. And what that course really is, is, you know, uh, let's say sessions, like doing work with people. There are things that got repeated, 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 and it's expensive to have those sessions for me at time and people's money. And so I took out things that I repeat over and over and over again as a little sort of introduction. And so that's something that helps. I used to require it. I some, you know, it's a good idea, but I don't always require it now, but it's something that you can do to have an introduction and that will help segue into one-on-one -on -one work or group work. And in lazy lady living, that's sort of like the overarching course that includes traditional foods and permaculture and biodynamics and trauma initiation and things of like soil and cultivated ecology and energy systems and ethical right livelihood. A whole, you know, it's sort of the umbrella. And then there's smaller courses or other courses that go more in depth into some of these topics in Blaze Lady Living. Ah, okay. What does the good dirt mean to you? Off the top of my head, you know, it's like not just any dirt. It's good dirt. <laughs> you know, beautiful, whole, alive, unadulterated dirt. The good dirt for me and for our family in terms of there's this phrase that it's a teaching, it's a mantra, it's a it's a cultural value. We find coming out of our mouth all the time is like, well, in a good way. It's in a good way. And it so permeates everything. I'm like, I don't know when I heard it first. It was something when I led this group called, uh, in the Indigena Project, where it was a group of mothers, women coming together to, you know, with indigenous ancestry to kind of together restore the gaps and breaks in their indigenous identity. And so everyone brought uh, teachings to that circle. And that was one of the big teachings was in a good way to do something in a good way. I don't know why, if it's everything that surrounds it that 
evokes for our family or if it there's something just also like in family constellation there's like certain phrases that just when you say them that it's like it's almost like just in the language it's present so I, I it's hard for me to know because I'm a fish in water but this idea of in a good way doing something in a good way just reminds us it's a regular way like not an arrogant or ego driven way it's a in a good way you do that thing in a good way and so when I think of the good dirt I just think of the word good as being so simple and basic. And I have a friend, she was, she talked to me, she spoke to me re, I don't know, a few years ago about in her language, the Lakota language, there's a word. I don't know what the word is, but she says it just mean, it means regular and it's a virtue being regular. You do it in a good way. It doesn't bring attention to yourself. It doesn't. And it's about a being of service. I, there's this one teacher, he says, if you're feeling nervous about something, then you need to shift into like being that you're being of service and that you're just nervousness because it just melts away because it, oh I'm just so that's my association with in a good way or I mean with a good dirt is in a good way I like that Thea do you have anything to add if not that's okay <laughs> not really that's kind of what we talked about Weird. together I'll ask you first Fee, is there anything you'd like to add or, or leave the audience with as we close up here about the work that you do anything you want to anything you want listeners to understand most about the work that you do I think that it's really hard. I'm struggling with finding my place and figuring out what it means to become an individual, but also not disconnecting from my family. Gosh, you live such an interesting life. What is it that you enjoy most about your day? Well, for me, it's getting to spend time with the animals. I really like it's really it's very important to me and so I often you know I'm overwhelmed I'm stressed I'm busy I've got a million things going through my mind that I'm trying to remember and organize but then you know sometimes I'll be like okay I just take a minute and I'll go you know actually go go into the pen with the goats and hang out with the kids and watch the moms and their babies and the different does interacting with each other and all coming over and begging me for love. And that's one thing I can say very consistently brings me to a more, a more peaceful place. And it's interesting because I think that so much of, at least what I remember of being an adolescent and, and I see maybe, I don't know, maybe just what I remember is like, there's all, it's this constant chasing. And like, I don't think I had anything like that where I could, this pressure to do unnourishing things, to push yourself in. And for me, it's kind of always been, it ha it's not always animals, but I've always really loved plants and nature. And so, you know, I can have a similar, like, calming when I, you know, go and spend a little time in the garden or I take a walk or just taking a minute to center myself and be present with the earth and nature and step away from the chaos and complicatedness of, I think, especially just being a teenager and being so, I feel like I'm maturing in leaps and bounds and I'm becoming an adult. And yet in some ways, I also feel like a little child in a way that I haven't for a while. Like it's... Mm -hmm. 
it's this strange time of being in between and needing more and less. <sighs> and it's really hard <laughs> for me to figure out and for my family to figure out because I kind of need opposite things and I'm confusing myself as well as the people around me in trying to figure out how to move forward. I think that that's like maybe part of that difference, just having gone through adolescence at a different time, which is probably an easier time to go through an adolescence than now, that all the messages, there were no messages about honoring that sort of surge in vulnerability that also happens in adolescence that has to emerge to balance the individuation that's happening. Like in order to, to, it's like to make that leap there, there needs to be this. I think that maybe that's what's different Mm -hmm. is that within our family, the value of maintaining family is able to support that other pole, that need and that you can voice it. Whereas I think, you know, just out in the world being an adolescent right now, it's like, you probably only get pressure to like, get good grades, do this, move on, move out, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) Yeah. And something I also would like to comment on is other adolescents, young people coming of age, there's not a lot of messaging in the wider culture about being able to seek solace and being with animals and plants and the way you just so beautifully expressed that you've been able to cultivate and discover because of your upbringing. It's a wonderful thing to tell other young people that there is solace in nature. There is solace in plants and your and your dog. And maybe that's just something that's not talked about enough. And little a little moment of peace, five minutes of peace can help you a lot. Maybe it it doesn't solve all your problems or all your confusion or help you figure out what you're going to do next in life. But that little slice of peace that you get from watching the bird in the yard or whatever, it's valuable and it does help and it is healing. Yes. And so thanks for telling other young people that this is available to, I would say, almost anyone. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is available. Yeah. Because it doesn't, it's not. It could be just sitting on your front porch with your dog for two minutes and just closing your eyes and just be there. And and it can really change a lot. Yes. Christo, what would you like to leave the audience with as we move forward? It's funny, like we're similar. Like like I'm sort of slow and it takes a minute sometimes to feel into like the arc of what's been communicated, what we've been talking about and the point of your project and what you're doing and sowing those seeds of a really different paradigm that does relate to what Fia is talking about and to really what needs to happen. And it's such a conundrum, I think. It really is, you know, I think like for, I think like we're so far down this road of, and we're, you know, immersed in this sort of other way that is still, you know, interfaces with the American culture, you know, but that it is like this plague, you know, that is everywhere. And we, it's hard. It's hard being alive right now. It's a lot. And I guess maybe what I want to impart is that it, it doesn't get easier, but there are practices. There's lots and lots of hope. And, it, and maybe it relates also to that thing, like when you take a step 
I mean, it's like that small and slow solutions, like slow growth is the only sustainable growth and that like taking small steps is really important. And like this small, it seems like a small thing of like going in nature, but also like if there's like whole guilt and shame thing about like, why don't I go into nature enough? And like, there is like, and that's where the trauma piece is. And that's, I don't know why exactly right now that that feels like a core message. When you start opening to life, really, you are also open to death. And that's part of the, that's just the reality and that, but that there is a way that our nervous systems can handle it. And there is a way to restore our resilience. Oh, that's great. And you, you hear people coming out now and saying things like all this, you know, regenerative farming and permaculture, it doesn't work. It's destined for failure. And, you know, I hear, I hear those voices now. Some people get out and try it and they're, and it's the grind, the grind, the grind, and they can't quite make it work. And so what you just said, it's missing that piece. It's yeah. Missing the- yeah. Yeah. Because it's like, it's a, it's an act of will in without the spirit and the healing piece that we have, you know, just having so much compassion for ourselves and also I think our enemies. I mean, this for the greater culture that we, we are being set up as ourselves and our enemies, but it is because of trauma and it, there is a way that is separate from like the psychotherapeutics, meaning like the psycho, the, the antidepressants and the, these psychiatric, you know, the cognitive therapy, the coaching, et cetera. There is really a deep, profound way to restore our systems so that we can find our way. So that's interesting that you say that because whenever we feel that, we if we start feeling that way, we know that we're off the path and we have to like go and read our thank the Thanksgiving address or do that healing. Like cause you heal and then you move forward and then there's always another layer. So yeah, so I think that that of healing, like that is connected to indigenous ceremony because ultimately the more I practice these Western ones and and indigenous ceremony, I find how they come together and like that is what humanity, that is one of the first thing that the colonization does is like decimate ceremonies and language too, which is related. Like the songs, the language, the words, they resonate in our bodies, it's medicine. So that is, I think, where the ministry comes in and what we're doing at Tierra Soul on the whole and sort of like the greater mission. Thank you. Wonderful conversation. Fascinating. And we just appreciate your time so much today. Both of you, Krista and Fia. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. (laughs) Yeah. Tuning in, calling in, and spreading the good dirt. We love hearing from you. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow-living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at We Are Lady Farmer. That's We Are Lady Farmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye.